All right. Well, good to see you. How is everyone? Good. I'm glad. Got one great up here. It's good. It's good. Uh, we are starting a new series this morning in the book of Romans. We'll be in Romans chapter 1, 1 to 17 today. Specifically, we're going to look at uh, verses 16 and 17 in detail, but we're going to read that entire thing. I want to I take time over the next few months, even, even past, we'll kind of pause for Advent around Christmas time and then go take Romans into the new year. But I want to take time to walk through this really important letter to the church at Rome for a couple of reasons. One, the, the, the letter of all the New Testament letters, this letter has crystal clear gospel clarity. It's very easy to understand the goodness of the gospel as you read the book of Romans and, and learn how that plays in your life and how to apply it. Secondarily, it is one of the most doctrinally rich uh, letters in the New Testament, and we need to take the time to work through that doctrine, the things that we believe, the foundation stones for why we believe what we believe, all of those kinds of things. And then third, and, and certainly not last, the Roman culture that this church was flourishing in is parallel to the 21st century American culture. Same issues, same problems, same philosophies, same systems, same thoughts and ideas, and we'll work, work through that together. But it's really important for us to learn how to flourish as believers in this moment in 21st century American life, and uh, the book of Romans will help us do that. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and we'll read Romans chapter 1, 1 to 17. If you're our guest, at the end of the main text reading, we say this phrase, the very words, just to distinguish God's word from uh, my own. This is a letter, so it's going to sound like uh, a letter written by the Apostle Paul. It says this, Paul, a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all of the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. 
I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You can be seated. The author of this letter to the church at Rome, and by the way, I just want to reemphasize that this is written to the church at Rome. And we need to understand that as it progresses because some of the problems and issues that come up are real to the church at Rome. Not just all the other people in Roman culture, but the church at Rome. This is written to the church at Rome. It is written by the apostle Paul. And as I was sitting in my study this week, thinking through uh, presenting this message to you and beginning this letter, I thought a lot about how to do that in a way that might make sense to you. And I began to I think, like, I wonder what people know about the author, about the apostle Paul. Like most people know something about he was blinded by a light, you know, on a road on the way to Damascus and it changed his life. Uh, but I want to tell you a little bit about the Apostle Paul so that you can understand him, so that you can understand the letter. And I want to give you four uh, really characteristics of the Apostle Paul that frame up who he is, four things that you should know about Paul. And then we're going to focus on Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17 for the duration of our time together today. So, Paul, who was he? He is Roman. That's the first thing you need to know. He is Roman. He was born in Tarsus in biblical Asia Minor. Tarsus is a significant city. It is uh, the gateway to trade from Antioch or from, let's just say, Egypt, Israel, Syria, Antioch, and then up into all of what now is modern-day Turkey. It was the gateway for that trade route. It's completely Roman in every way. So it celebrates uh, athletes. It celebrates philosophers. It celebrates money. Does anybody else ever live in a culture like that here? It is our culture. It's a lot like our culture. It is the third largest center of philosophy in the Roman Empire. So when you're talking about Tarsus, understand that they have an incredible philosophy school there. And in that time frame, there's no better school to go to than the the, the school of philosophy in a place like Tarsus. Uh, Philosophy is like the top of the academic educational pyramid in that time frame. frame. Uh, In the the Roman mindset, these are heroes, philosophers. So you may have heard of, of people like Marcus Aurelius, who was a Roman philosopher, Uh, Others, uh, he's a Stoic, actually, but many different philosophers who, for for, uh, good or bad, were celebrating the Roman Empire. So he lives among that. He knows what sport is. He knows what shopping is. He knows what uh, a gymnasium is and, and philosophy is. He's educated in that particular kind of setting as he grows up in Tarsus, but he's also... He's not just Roman in citizenship and language, but he's also Hebrew. 
And that's the th- second thing that you need to know. He is Hebrew. He is raised by very Jewish parents in a very Jewish way. So he's set in the middle of this gateway city for the Roman Empire in that part of the world among philosophers, athletes, actors. He understands the Roman politic. He gets the gods and kings of Rome and all that. But he is raised as a Jew, and Jews believe this. Uh, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The problem is the Romans have many gods, right? Uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Just one God, right? And so they stick out. In that culture, they stick out. They wear different clothes. They wear tassels, Jewish clothes. They have uh, different traditions. They go to the synagogue. They do discipleship at the family table. They memorize Torah. All of these things that are very different than all most of the people around them. There's a synagogue in Tarsus. But... He's Hebrew, uh, very Hebrew. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 and 5 says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. This is how Hebrew he is. He can really tell us. He was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee. So he's saying, I did it all right. I followed all the law. My genetics are right. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And I'm, he goes so far as to say, I'm a zealous Pharisee, which is our third item. He's Roman. He's a citizen of Rome. He's Hebrew, and he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. But the third thing is, he is a uh, Pharisee. So what does that even mean? A Pharisee. Most of us, when we think about Pharisees, we think about uh, hypocrites is the, is the word that we sort of connect with uh, Pharisee, but that's, that's uh, maybe true of some, but it's also true of some like Baptists. Did you know that? So let's, let's go back and look at what it actually is. So there were different kinds of, of leaders in the Jewish world in that time. There were Pharisees. Pharisees were people who believed in all of the Torah, the oral tradition, the writings, the prophets, and they believe in the resurrection of the dead. If I was to categorize myself in any one of these that I'm getting ready to mention to you, I would say I would be most like a Pharisee in my understanding, my beliefs. Uh, Sadducees, Sadducees, uh, they, they believe in the Torah, uh, oral tradition. They do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And in that time frame, Sadducees uh, make up a section of the uh, Sanhedrin that is really money hungry, right? So they're using their religion for profit. Uh, and we, we know that for lots of different reasons. So Pharisees, Sadducees, they're Essenes who separate themselves. We talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls several weeks ago, and we talked about the reliability of the scripture. The Essenes were the ones that separate themselves to be holy. We don't want to be around any of these people, including Romans. We'll go out in the wilderness and we'll copy scrolls. And we're thankful that they did uh, now, but they, they were separatists. And then you had zealots who were like terrorists who brought the Torah to Rome with a knife to the, to the two percenters of the Jewish faith with a knife. Uh, Paul was a Pharisee. Um, he was discipled by Gamaliel, the text, the biblical text tells us. Now, Gamaliel, uh, they called him Rabban. Most, most teachers had the word rabbi. They called Gamaliel, Rabban, this meant our teacher. 
So he was viewed as one of the teachers of the house of Israel. I mean, he was influential, upright from the school of Hillel. He was, uh, he was the one when, when the Sanhedrin gathered and they were like, let's get rid of these disciples that won't stop preaching Jesus. He said, look, if it's of God, let it go. If it's of God, it, you can't stop it. But if it isn't of God, it will burn out. So just let it go. He's very uh, important wisdom given in the, the text. Paul was discipled by Gamaliel. He was, a, he was zealous. Paul was zealous. He was respected, but he goes farther than Gamaliel in that he's present in the stoning of Stephen. He begins to persecute uh, followers of Jesus. So he holds, holds cloaks, actually. He doesn't throw a stone, but he holds the cloaks, maybe even organized the stoning of the deacon Stephen in the book of Acts. Now, this is the one that Stephen was operating as a deacon in power, and it says that when he was about to die, that in in heaven, Jesus stood up, and it's a powerful statement to say, look at our King Jesus standing up at the the martyr of the Stephen. Well, Paul was behind that. This is Paul. He's a Pharisee. He was sent to Damascus from Jerusalem to round up followers of the way, followers of Jesus, and bring them back to Jerusalem for persecution, for trial, for discipline, maybe even for death. Uh, And he had the power to do it. He was very influential, very powerful. Um, He was a Pharisee. Um, It says the second part of Philippians chapter 5 and verse 6, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's saying of himself, I'm righteous under the law, which means he thought he was following all the commands. That's, that's uh, it's stunning. So much so... He loved God so much. He was so zealous for God that he thought this little cult called Christianity needed to be snuffed out, and he was going to be the one to do it. This is Paul, but it doesn't stop there. He was Roman. He was Hebrew. He is a Pharisee. Galatians 1, 13 and 14, he, he gives testimony to the church of Galatia. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. See, I'm not making this up. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely jealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Like, I was getting it done. But he's not only Roman. He's not only Hebrew. He's not only a Pharisee, but he's also a Christ follower. He's a Christ follower. He's a Christian. He's an ambassador ambassador to the nations. He plants churches. He preaches the gospel. He has an anti-imperial agenda, which in the Roman Empire is uh, against the emperor, against the Caesar. He has an anti-imperial agenda, agenda, meaning if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar cannot be. And the problem with the Roman Empire is Caesar is Lord. And so as zealous as he once was to persecute, now he's just as zealous for the man Christ. Why? Because he did have a time, a testimony on the road to Damascus where in Acts chapter 9, he's going to, to, to persecute followers of the way in Damascus and he's met on the road by a blinding light and an audible voice. 
Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He says, Lord, who are you? He already knows. Lord, who are you? Uh, He is transformed in that moment. In the next season, he goes to Damascus to Straight Street, which is hilarious for a Hebrew of Hebrews because all of his Bible is like telling him to walk straight paths. He goes to Straight Street where he meets Ananias, and Ananias gives him his sight back. Now he can see. Do you see all the pictures? And he goes back, asks for permission in Jerusalem from the disciples, the the church in Jerusalem, to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And that's what he does, the nations, right? And that's why we get him authoring this letter uh, to the book of Romans. Listen listen to what he says about himself in the first part of Romans chapter 1, 1 to 6. Here's how he describes himself now after meeting Jesus. I'm Paul, right? Now, I just want to correct one little thing that bugs me to death. So I hear people say all the time, Saul met Jesus on the road to Damascus and became Paul, changed his name. But his name was always Paul and always Saul, right? Remember I said he was Roman. His Roman name is Paulus. He was Hebrew. His Jewish name is Shaul. They called him those names way before this Acts chapter 9 episode. So his name didn't change because he came to Christ. Everything else changed for Paul. Everything else changed for him. And so he now is a Christian. He says, I am Paul, a servant of Christ. Remember, he was a persecutor of Christ. Now he's saying of his own accord, I'm a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, this message of the kingdom, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. He's proclaiming to all the Pharisees who already believe in the resurrection of the dead, Jesus has raised from the dead. This is the one. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to to belong to Jesus Christ, To, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how he introduces himself to Rome, to church at Rome. I'm just a servant of Jesus whose life was changed. And I want you to know him and the power of his resurrection because the gospel changes everything, changes everything. Some people say that the the, the conversion of the apostle Paul is the greatest Christian apologetic in history because he is the very last person that you would have expected to follow Jesus, the very last. And I think this is why Jesus chose him, because he's Roman, and he's going to take the gospel to a Roman world, because he's Hebrew. He's going to go first to the synagogues in all of those places that he'll go in the Roman world, and he's going to weave the Old Testament, the Torah, and the gospel of Jesus Christ all together so they can see the truth of the prophecy and the writings and the Torah and how it's all fulfilled in Jesus. He's perfect because he was a Pharisee. They see He was zealous. They know the stories. He's changed. Obviously, he's changed. And now he's become this Christ follower. So this is the Apostle Paul, a little bit about the Apostle 
Paul. And I think we should know him in this way in order to understand the letter. Now, what I want to do is focus on verses 16 and 17 here of chapter 1. It really is a framework statement for the entire letter. It summarizes all of chapter uh, 1. And I'll read it again now at the beginning of verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. These are Paul's words. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so uh, verse 17, for in, the righteousness of, in, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So let me just work through this slowly. So he says that he is not ashamed of the gospel. So the question becomes like, why would he have to be ashamed of the, of the gospel? Why, why would you imagine that he might be ashamed of the gospel? Well, maybe it was because of the power and the might of Rome. You have to understand that Caesar is Lord and that he already has a gospel. Same word used uh, gospel for Caesar, and his gospel is the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, and all that Rome has to bring. And if you were living in that culture in that time period that day, you would look around and you would see the gospel of Caesar is amazing. I mean, just looking at the archaeology is amazing. But if you had lived in that time, you would have seen that it's big and it's powerful and it's opulent and it's rich. And who could ever overcome this? How could this ever fall? This is unbeatable. This is the best it's ever been. And this is because of the gospel of Caesar. So maybe Paul should feel ashamed because of the the gospel of Caesar, because of the power and the might of Rome. Maybe he should feel ashamed offering a savior to a culture that has a pantheon of saviors. Lots of saviors, little s. Maybe he should have some shame in heralding the gospel of a Messiah in Rome, the center of the world, the powerhouse of the world, that heralds all the way from Nezareth. Nazareth. It literally translates Shootsville. You got Caesar and all his might and his power and this gospel, this Pax Romana is taking over the world and you have Jesus of Shootsville. Maybe he should feel ashamed uh, because of that. It's clear though, the reason he is not ashamed is that he already has experienced and understands that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. He knows it in his knower, deep in his life, and it is the righteousness of God. He is not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel then, according to this passage of scripture, the gospel is for, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, let's talk about this power of God for salvation. To say that the gospel is the power of God is to acknowledge the dynamic quality of this message. Like, this is not a message like any other message. The gospel, we boil it down and say the gospel is good news, but it's, it, 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 it kind of cheapens it just to say that it's good news. And our culture hasn't helped with that. Our churchy culture over time has not helped with that. To say, like, here's a, 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 a you know, a, a funny Halloween track. This is good news. Like, the world is like, what? I know, I've handed them out. I know what it's like. 
you're, I can feel you're like, but I have five tracks right now in my pocket. I'm not b- banging on tracks. I'm just saying we can't cheapen it. We can't cheapen it. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It is, is it, it is the message of salvation initiated by God. You didn't initiate this message. The world didn't initiate the message. Rome didn't initiate the message. Caesar didn't initiate the message. God initiated the message and carried it out by his power. And this is the message of a risen king from Shootsville. But he's raised. And that's the difference. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4, Paul said this to the church at Corinth. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here's the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture that he was buried, and that he was raised in the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And the scriptures he's talking about is the Old Testament. He's saying like Jesus is the fulfillment, and his message, the gospel, is this good news of the kingdom that the one has come that saves people from their sins. It is really good news. The gospel is... God telling his love to wayward people. How, how many of you would put yourself in that category? Wayward. Yes, we've all, in fact, the Bible would say, for all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're, we're wayward people. The gospel is God telling his love to wayward people. This salvation resulting from believing the gospel message is more than forgiveness of sin, though. It's cheap just to say it's just forgiveness of sin. Maybe that would be good enough for us, but it's more than forgiveness of sin. It includes the fullness of deliverance from Adam's sin, from original sin. It involves justification, like being set right with God. Like even though I know I'm not perfect, even though I have a tendency to sin, because of Jesus, I've been set right with God, justified before him. It's good, good News, it's sanctification, it's this process that the Holy Spirit walks with you and makes you more like Jesus, more holy, more right, able to hear him each and every day as you follow him. And it's glorification, this promise of ultimate transformation into the likeness of Christ at the end of your life. It's way more than he just forgave me of my sins. It changes your identity and your eternity completely and totally. And it is For everyone who believes, Paul says, to the Jew first, then the nations. That's actually how the gospel rolled out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the earth. In fact, Paul follows this, has this uh, pattern of going into Roman cities, finding the synagogue, preaching there first to follow the pattern, and then preaching to the the nations, He is, uh, but it it is a gospel for everyone. Our faith is not meritorious, but without faith, there can be no salvation. I want you to think about that. It's not merit-based, but without faith, there is no salvation. You have to believe. It's for everyone who Believes, And then we get this, this statement that is incredible. 
For in, verse 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. When, when he's talking about the righteousness of God here, he's talking about a human righteous status that results from God's justifying activity. A human righteous status that results from God's justifying activity. So by nature, you know this is true from your own life. By nature, we have the tendency to view righteousness as something we can achieve on our own. By our own good behavior or right actions. That's our tendency. We think somewhere deep down inside, righteousness is the result of what we do. Do you know that that's actually a very pagan notion? It's a pagan notion that righteousness can be earned. It's a lie from the pit of hell that righteousness can be earned. That's the gospel of all the other gods, all the other cults, all the other kings. The righteousness of God biblically is totally different. It's a right standing before God that has nothing to do with human merit. Nothing to do with human merit. It is received by faith. This is the gospel. Jesus died on a cross to save you from your sins. If you confess that he is Lord and believe that he was raised from the dead, you'll be saved. And it's in the belief that you are saved, not your merit, not your works. Amen. Say it loud. Say it loud. Be free. Be free of your burden to work your way to God. You cannot. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's only in him, by faith in him, that we have this righteousness of God. Philippians 3, chapter 9, that we may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. There is no merit, no way to work your way there. It's just you have to believe that Jesus was enough and that it's actually that good. Paul kind of wraps up this section in a way that's a good response for us. He says, the righteous shall live by faith. He's actually quoting Habakkuk 2, 4. He does it again in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith. No one is justified by God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. This was a guy who said, I'm doing all the law right, and then repented and followed Jesus. Listen to me. Our sinful nature is so enmeshed in lies. We have a tendency to believe lies. Perhaps, perhaps you have believed that you must work for righteousness and salvation. And maybe you would even, if you're churched, this can, can become confusing. Maybe you would even say, I, I, 
I, I know Jesus died on a cross the same as for my sin. There's nothing I can do about it. But the way that you live your life is, is, is telling a different story, that you're working so hard just to be right with God. And what you need to understand at the beginning of the, the, the letter to the church at Rome is you cannot work hard enough to be right with God. It's really that good, this gospel of the kingdom, that though you could have never earned heaven, God gave his son, his only son, the one he loves to die on a cross to save you from your sin, to appease his wrath and justice, and to give you new identity and new eternity. And there's nothing. He, that's on his initiation He's a loving God who initiated all that. You had nothing to do with it except to hear and believe. But we are enmeshed in lies. Maybe you're performing today. Maybe you are thinking somehow that you can work hard and make yourself right with God. Maybe you're stuck in a sin cycle and saying to yourself, well, if I just do these things, then it'll be okay. And the reality is, you can't do enough, but you can trust Jesus. So what would your response, if you're a performer, you grew up in church, you've heard the gospel, you understand, but you're not living in a freedom that says, I can't do enough to work my way there, so I'm just going to trust Jesus that he did enough and lay that burden down? Well, you just need to repent and believe. Trust him that he's enough, that your work is, is frivolous apart from the gospel that he's off, offering. Jesus is enough. He said this in the book of Matthew, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. It, it, you can get bound up in the religiosity of things and miss Christ and his goodness. Paul was the most religious person you've ever met in your life, most zealously religious person you've ever met in your life. And now he's telling the whole world about this king, Jesus, who rose from the dead, who offers this gospel message that is freeing from the burden of religiosity. And we simply have to trust him. Maybe it's hard for you to believe that the gospel is that powerful and that good. Paul believes it, obviously. Changed everything for him. He became uh, someone who at great expense, physically, spiritually, emotionally, at great expense, spent his entire life in persecution, spreading the message of the gospel, which is the power of salvation to anyone and everyone who would listen in Asia Minor. He planted churches all over Asia Minor. He was set before kings and courts and imprisoned, all for the sake of the gospel. And he's saying to us, like, I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So maybe it's hard for you to believe that it's that good, that Jesus is pursuing you, that he loves you, that with intentionality, You've heard this gospel message. That's on him. He wanted you to hear it. Now, what is your response? You simply have to trust him and believe. You have to trust him and believe. It's for everyone, including you. 
Maybe today you just need to exercise like the smallest amount of faith. Just believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's how Paul opens the letter. You know when, uh, when, you, when you write a letter, he introduced himself and then he said, if, basically, I'm gonna write a long letter, but if you don't remember anything else, remember this. Remember this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And just ask the Lord to speak to you. Father, thank you for doing all the work to justify me and forgive me of my sin and make me righteous in your eyes. I could have done none of that. There's nothing I could could do to earn it, but you've poured out your love on me. You've poured out your grace on me and to everyone who has trusted Jesus Christ for salvation. Father, I pray for those that live in the burden of working hard to please you. Lord, would you help them see that you love them, that you've initiated what is their best for their best, for your glory through Jesus on the cross and and his resurrection. I pray you would help us to receive that message today. Father, for people that are listening to this teaching And hearing the gospel maybe for the first time in a clear way, God, I pray that you would save them, that your Holy Spirit would woo them. They would know they need to cry out to you in belief. And as they believe, God, would you you save them just like your word says. Give them a new identity, a new eternity, a new life with you, free of, of, of the penalty of sin and right standing with you. So, God, we thank you for this. We love you so much. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.